For our scripture reading this evening, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It'll be verses 26 through 31. 26 through 31. Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the, the, fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every, green tree, every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. All right, well, good evening. <laughs> we're going to be talking about something tonight that the first half is going to require you to sort of engage intellectually, okay? you got to think a little bit tonight um, for the first part. And then the second part, we're going to see why what we're thinking about has really serious implications. Um, let me start by asking sort of a broad question that I'm sure most of you have a pretty good answer to, but I want you just to see if uh, you could think about your answer and what makes your answer distinct. Um, what makes your answer, you know, maybe purposeful? And the question is this. What is it about human life that gives it a difference or a value? As opposed to the life of maybe an animal or the life of a plant. Um, life that we see in other places that aren't humans. What makes human life distinct? set apart. You notice the section that Tim read for us was that portion of creation, day six. And on day six, God did not just make mankind. If we would have bumped back a little bit before, we would have noticed that God would have said to the earth, let the earth bring forth the beasts of the field. And he spoke of animals coming forth in creation. And then he says, and let us make man in our image, mankind. Male and female, let us make them in our image. And he goes on to describe that to mankind, he's given them dominion over the earth and all the living things on the earth. You see, what's being set forth in Genesis chapter 1, the passage that Tim read for us, is a peculiar teaching, a distinguishing teaching, that is within the Judeo-Christian culture that doesn't find itself in every other world religion and every other philosophy. And that distinction or that doctrine is the doctrine of the image of God. That mankind, male and female, has been made in the very image of God and nothing else that has been created, no other living thing that exists today was made 
like mankind in the image of God. And so it's really important for us, this subject is vital for really, really contemporary discussion about human life. This has far-reaching, what you might call implications, about how we value and treat and interact with human life in comparison to life just in general and other places. And so in Genesis 1, 26, he said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. What do you make of this phrase, in the image of God? I like to do this um, sort of, I guess it's probably pretty stupid, but exercise. When I'm thinking about some of these things, um, you know, when I'm studying throughout the week and contemplating, imagine for a moment somebody from another planet just drops in. Never heard of the Bible, never heard of church, never heard of anything that we're doing here with regards to religion, and they start inquiring about human life, and one of the things you tell them is, hey, listen, humans, unlike animals or plants, have been made in the image of God, and they say, well, that's interesting. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What exactly, how, how would you go on to describe to somebody who hasn't really contemplated or thought about or made sense of what it means to be made in the image of God? And it's at this juncture that human life really goes one of two ways, and it's incredibly important. And what we learn about this phrase here in Genesis chapter 1 is that this phrase image of God is declared by God. He tells us we're made in his image. But in this text, he really doesn't begin to flesh it out, to begin to define it. He doesn't fully expose it. Genesis 1 states that we are made in God's image, and the rest of Scripture shows us what that looks like. And so you and I have got to do some work. We've got to do some thinking and reasoning to figure out what it means to be made in the image of God. And people all over the place sort of I wouldn't say argue, but just talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. And it falls all over all kinds of spectrums. And people say, well, maybe it means we have rationality. That's what it means. Or maybe it means we have free will or righteousness or the desire for fellowship. Or being made in the image of God means that we're eternal beings. When we're born, then we have eternal life. We will exist for all eternity. Or maybe it means the fact that we have a soul to us. And even we get into those realms, like what's a soul, right? And people still have a lot of questions. To make it really simple for you, I want to give you two things that we at least know from Scripture what it means to be made in the image of God, okay? First of all, we are a reflection of God. Think about the word image. Image is, um, what, it, what it means is just to reflect something you've seen, something you're looking at. And so you can look into the mirror, and that mirror would be reflecting your image. Or you could take a picture with a camera, and when that film gets developed, if that people still do that today... Um, that film would develop and you would look at an image of what the picture was taken. Now that image is not the actual thing. Like if I took your picture, developed that film, and looked at that picture, that wouldn't actually be you, but it would be a reflection or an image of you. And so you and I were created in God's nature, in his nature, designed to resemble him. To show forth what he looks like. Number one, we're a reflection of God. 
And that means that we are a lot of things. Let me just give you a few just to think about. That means that we are spiritual beings. That we exist beyond just the material. We're spiritual. It means that we are personal beings. That we are independent. So we're not just um, a conglomerate of a being, but we actually are independent people with will and thought and intention and reason and all those different things. We are personal beings. It means that we are moral beings. That there's something within mankind that is bothered when things violate our conscience. That doesn't mean that our conscience can't become seared or misguided or misdirected, but there's something within mankind, regardless of whether they're religious or not, that we look at things and say, this is right or wrong. This is good or bad. This should be kept and this should be discarded, which is distinct and different than any other creature in this world. You know, whether you're religious or not, mankind wrestles with questions like, is this ethical or not ethical? Isn't it, it's, ethics are all over the place. Is this just or unjust? And so we are moral beings because we were made in the image of God. We are rational beings, meaning we possess a mind that is used for thought, that looks at things and reasons about things and makes logical conclusions about things. Now, sometimes we don't use our logic well, but we were designed by God to use that kind of logic and thinking, unlike any other beings. We are emotional beings, that we experience life and experience emotion and reaction to how we exist in this life. It also means that we are creative beings, that there's something within mankind that has a desire to create things, to develop things, to grow things, whether it's a business or a sculpture. We sort of have desires to create, create and craft things and make things. And we're involved in that because we've been made in the image of God. And in, in those things, all those things, and there's many others, as we do those well and right, we represent to others what God looks like. This is what God looks like. Now, the second thing is we're not just, um, uh, as beings, we are not just reflections of God. We are also representatives of God. Now, this goes one step farther. So when, when God says, I've made you in my image, he doesn't just say, you're a chip off the old block. You're going to be just like your old man. When you grow up, you're going to look just like me. He goes one step farther. And he says that you are actually my representative. That in all things, when we live in the image of God, we represent to the world what God is like. So when we love and when we care, when we serve, when we laugh, when we cry, what we're doing is displaying what God looks like and how he is. You see, this was God's intention with creation. Not just creating mankind, but creation in general. Psalm 19 verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. They're the work of his mighty hand. That when we look to the heavens, we can see things about God and learn who he is because the world represents parts of who God is. And he longs for his glory to fill the entire earth. You know that's God's final intention. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says in prophecy that he longs to see like water covering the sea, the glory of God filling the earth. And we've talked before at times about what the glory of God means, what it means to know the glory of God. It means his significance, to know his worth, to know his value, to understand who he is. And so what he longs for is that this entire world 
be saturated with his glory, that every living being would absorb and know who his God is, who God is, pardon me. And when we live as though other things are more important, have more glory, you might say, we fail to represent who God is accurately. But that's who you've been created to be. Your original design, your original purpose is to reflect the nature of God and to represent him here on earth. But we sort of ran into some complication. If Tim kept reading all the way through chapter 2 and then into chapter 3, you get to that familiar story of Adam and Eve where this concept of being God's representatives and God's reflection in the earth didn't last very long. Living as God's image bearers took a wrong turn. He says in chapter 3, verse 5, uh, as you get into that story where Satan shows up and he begins to tempt Eve, he has a very interesting way of drawing Eve away from obedience and faith in God to himself. He has a very unique way of doing it. In chapter 3, verse 5, Satan says this to Eve. When he's getting into her mind about eating the fruit, he's saying, listen, you should eat the fruit because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be, what are those last two words? You'll be what? You'll be like God. It sounds kind of like Satan is uh, maybe encouraging what God has designed, right? Chapter 1, verse 26, you were made in the likeness of God, right? And you were made as the image bearer of God. You were made as the reflection of God. You were made in the image of God. And so Satan is sort of tapping into this idea saying, listen, God just wants you to be like him. And if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. But there's a really subtle shift that the English has a hard time making clear because it uses the same root word, but I want to try to differentiate for you. Chapter 1, verse 26, in the likeness of God, is not the same phrase as chapter 3, verse 5, like God. Likeness and like are not the same thing. You see, um, being like God is when we see in the likeness of God, that means representing what he looks like. But when Satan said you will be like God, that phrase encapsulates this idea that there is a process by which you actually become God yourself. And so what Satan's temptation to Eve was, was this. You should eat that fruit because God has told you not to eat that fruit because he knows that when you start eating fruit from that tree, you will engage the process of transcending to becoming him equal. You will become God. This is the root of all of our sin. The exalting of ourselves to the center of our own universe, the exalting of ourselves to sovereign, the exalting of ourselves to the place and person in which we put all of our trust and confidence and reliance upon. Every one of us, when lost in sin, are small, tiny cyclones of self-absorption and self-exaltation. That's what we are. And we trust ourselves and rely upon ourselves and think about ourselves. And so what he's saying is from this position, man at the center, losing the image of God to become like God, to become God, humanity builds all kinds of problems based upon this. This is where humanity fell. This is how humanity has become broken, that we went from being image bearers of God 
to trying to be God himself, to run the world and run our own lives. That's where really our problems came. And from that, humanity has built all kinds of belief systems from humans at the center of the world, of all wisdom, of all insight, of all guidance, of all intellect, when humans are the source of all of that. We have built all kinds of belief systems from that. For instance, something that, that, that concept is called humanism, where you just solely rely upon human intellect and human wisdom to run your entire life. Now, one of the current ones we're dealing with, this is, okay, so we're transitioning now to the implications where this matters. What you think about with the regards to the image of God matters, and here's why. One of the most current, it's probably about 150 years old, but it's gaining steam, uh, belief systems that has been built on the foundation that humans are the source of all intellect, direction, wisdom, and guidance in this world. One of the problems is, one of the current belief systems is, is uh, the phrase survival of the fittest. You heard of survival of the fittest? Um, it's a pretty common uh, teaching. Uh, there, there's some stuff that's sort of transitioning out of that right now, but it's not really gaining much um, contemporary hold just yet. But this phrase, um, survival of the fist, was actually not coined by Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin did not come up with the term survival of the fittest. It was actually a man by the name of Herbert Spencer. Um, Darwin just popularized it. He made it kind of, uh, I guess, trendy or cool because he was sort of cool in that time and in vogue. But the term described Darwin's proposal of what he called natural selection. Y'all heard of natural selection? Natural selection is just this. It is the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And the concept is, is basically boils down to this idea that we as humans exist to reproduce ourselves in hopes that we might survive, and then if others come in our way of survival, we try to get rid of those so that we might maintain and continue on. And so with man at the center of our worldview, human beings' origin, their purpose, all revolve around self-preservation. Self-preservation. That I exist to preserve me and my lineage. It's the only reason I exist. Now that... It's sort of in, the, uh, in theoretical terms. But just take a moment to let that saturate into everyday culture. And tell me you don't see that everywhere. From marketing campaigns to our contemporary music that we listen to. This idea that we exist for self-preservation. That I need to look out for who? Number one, me, myself, and I. That, that, that's why I exist. That has gotten itself into the fiber of almost every part of our culture. But it's sort of a problem. Because here's the question that we run into, that uh, natural selectionists and survival of the fittest run into, is how do you explain things like sacrifice? How do you explain things like altruism? How do you explain something as simple as kindness? If I exist to reproduce myself in my next generation so that my lineage continues, how do I explain any concept of um, sacrifice, altruism, being kind, it just doesn't make sense. There's a man by the name of Keltner who's a professor, wrote a book called Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. And let me read you a quote from this phrase, uh, from this book, Born to be Good. He says, quote, Born to be good, for me, 
means that our mammalian and hominid evolution, don't worry about those words, just pick up the rest of it, have crafted a species, us, with remarkable tendencies towards kindness, play, generosity, reverence, and self-sacrifice, which are vital to the classic tasks of evolution, which is basically survival, gene replication, and just smooth functioning groups. Do you see what he's saying? In all of his research, in his study, in his philosophy, in his thinking, what he's saying is we have, in all these years of evolving, realized that things like play and generosity and reverence, self-sacrifice, altruism, kindness, really exist for survival, gene replication, carrying on my genes, and just smooth functioning groups. Now that sounds good and well, right? Not really, but you understand what he's getting at. But let me ask you a question. If the root of our goodness is what he's saying, that we were born to be good, that over time evolution has taught us that being kind and sacrificial is just what helps my genes continue, what really is at the root of all of my, quote, good qualities? Who is still at the root? You can tell me. It's me, isn't it? If it's still survival and gene replication, I'm still at the center of all my good qualities. And if that's true, when I am pressed into the corner of survival, who will I always choose? No one likes to deal with these implications. You see, we live in a sort of this um, socially schizophrenic society that speaks of things like free will and choice, but at the same time goes off on tangents that are just un inconceivable. We speak of things like reverence and self-sacrifice and altruism as things we ought to do, but those are rooted in self-serving interests. That's why it's bifurcated. It doesn't work. And when pressed into the corner... We will always choose ourselves, always. And so we miss some stuff. Here's the problem with it. Number one, our purpose. If, you're, if you are um, born just to be good and, and this evolutionary theory has brought this about and you are not really made in the image of God to reflect him, but you just over time have figured out how to be good because of natural selection, here's a problem. Number one, your purpose in life, is it based upon yourself or service of others or something bigger than you? Without the image of God doctrine, our purpose can only be one generation, one person, one day deep. It can only be about us. But with image of God imprinted on us, with us knowing that, you can actually find a purpose that is bigger than yourself. You begin to touch on things like legacy when you understand the image of God that you've been made in his image. Secondly, what about self-worth? That's sort of a buzzword today. It's, a, it's kind of a hot topic that where people find their worth and their value, what about self-worth? If self-worth is a product of just because we have figured out that serving each other and caring for each other is, is a, um, still a very selfish thing to do, where does self-worth really fall into this? We have a major issue on the forefront of our minds right now. Americans are suffering at great levels because of their issue with self-worth. And so here's the question. How do you know you're worth something without the image of God? Without the image of God, the only source of self-worth is performance. Performance. What you do. What you accomplish. 
what you're able to function with. And that problem has twofold to it. One, if you are successful, you're arrogant. And if you fail, you're left with despair. If this world is built solely upon what you accomplish, you can either be arrogant or in despair because you either succeed or fail. And it crushes you. But with the image of God, it becomes transcendent and intrinsic, durable and stabilizing. That you know you have worth because there was a God of love who out of his love created you to exist because he cares for you. Here's the third implication I have to ask you. How do we know the value of other people? How do we know that? Like, what should drive us, as I asked a few weeks ago, to care about children at Midwestern Children's Home right now? Why, why should we care? Or Syrian refugees, why should we care about them? Why should we care about people who are not in this room, and not even in this room, but not in my house, but not even in my house, not in my own skin? Why should I care? And the question is, is a person's worth and value based upon their dignity or their capacity? You see, dignity is your given worth, that, that you have dignity because somebody has said you're valuable to me. That's what dignity is. And you maintain your dignity by not letting other people run you down. When they treat you poorly, you maintain your dignity by knowing that you have worth that comes from God. And capacity is what you are able to, what you are capable of or accomplishing. And our secular worldview has to find reasons for humans to be valuable. Has to. Because we're saying humans are valuable. We say they are. And if capacity is the only reason that humans are valuable, then what do we do about unborn children? What capacity do they have? What can they accomplish? What do we do about orphans? What capacity do they have? Young little orphans. Can they do anything good for you? Can they, can they? Not really, if we're being honest. What do we do about disabled children? What do we do about the elderly when they pass their, we call prime, right? Do you see how all these questions begin to leak into our thinking? That if you remove the image of God and dignity given because you were made in God's image, all you're left with is a person's value based upon their capacity. What can they accomplish? And if a person can't accomplish something, do they have value? C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, there are no ordinary people in this world. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and even exploit. See, dignity is inherited value because of your relation to another. And you have that value because you are related to God. And it leads you to the last implication, and that is this. Things like social justice, which is a really hot topic right now. Everyone has to have some purpose to belong to, right? That they are passionate about and social media stirs it up and we believe in this cause and we're going to get behind it and we're going to solve this problem, some social justice issue. Where does the idea of even the concept of civil rights come from? You see, most people say it's a Western concept, but its roots are in Greek wisdom. Let me tell you something. Aristotle is the father of Western thought. And he had a theory. His whole theory was based upon the idea that slavery was natural. Western thought is built in his concepts and his teaching because all of it was built upon capacity and scale and, and rank. He taught 
that the theory, he called it the theory of natural slavery, that there were certain people of certain descent who deserved to be slaves and certain people who deserved to be royalty. This was his thought, and that's what Western thought is based upon. Social justice does not come from rational Western thought. It doesn't. It is the influence of the Bible on European judicial system that changed all of this civil rights. It goes all the way back into the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries when European judicial system began to be changed by the biblical effort of the value of human beings. People started debating things like the death penalty. Never debated before. Never thought about. And I'm not arguing yes or no on that, but what I'm saying is people started to say, wait a minute, even this criminal's life was made in the image of God. People started thinking about that. And so... Secular philosophy really does not support the idea of civil rights, but the biblical model of image of God really does. The Christian impact on a Roman world was due to their social justice. It was Christians who rejected the idea of abortion in the first century. Christians who fought infanticide, which was uh, when people would have a child they didn't want, they would kill that child right away. Christians took those in. It was Christians who cared for the widows and the orphans. It was Christians who went after the poor and the sick in the Roman um, province and the Roman kingdom. And it was at their own risk of their own life they defended those on the margin because they believed in the doctrine of the image of God, sick or not sick, capable or not capable. Every human life has value because they were made in God's image. And so you and I have to get back to the image of God if we're going to believe this. And we find the image of God restored first and foremost in Jesus Christ. Paul told, him, told us this way in Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That when he lived, he was the perfect representation of what God would look like if he had skin on. What we were supposed to be. You see, we were supposed to be the image of God, but we scarred that image. We, we um, caused that image to be faded. And the major role of Jesus was to be that perfect image bearer of God and restore us to that. This happens as we come by the power of God into Jesus Christ to put off the old scarred version of ourselves and put on the new self, as Paul said, Ephesians 4, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what happens in Christianity. You see, the transformation of what we call growing in Christ is a process that takes place, and the goal of that is that we might actually look like Jesus, and looking like Jesus means that we are the image bearers of God. This idea of image bearers of God doesn't just have major social implications. I wanted you to see some of these big topics like social justice and human value, but bring it down just for a moment to your commute to work tomorrow and the person that cuts you off. Does that driver bear the image of God in them? How do they deserve to be treated? Or the coworker that's incessantly frustrating, right? Does that coworker still bear the image of God? Or the children in your neighborhood that rock on your grass when you just planted seed, right? Does, does that child have the image of God? And we're sobered by the reality that every human, human, in and out of Christ has been made in the image of God, it will wake us up to how we interact with people. And it will remind us that even if people are outside of Christ, living sinfully, scarring the image of God, our goal is that they might actually have that image restored in them. And we could speak with that goal to them, that they might see Jesus in us 
and want to mirror that as well. So we need to reflect Jesus as God in the flesh, as his children, showing the world what he looks like. And if you need help doing that, if you need prayer doing that, if you need encouragement doing that, or maybe you just have been confused about it or haven't lived it, we want to help you do that. You can come as we stand and sing the song of Donovan.